Thank you for uh, leading us in worship this morning. Wow, you guys were really into that, weren't you? That's great. Well, before we uh, begin the message, I want to take some time uh, to pray. There are so many things at work in our world, and, uh, and also in many people's lives, as personal lives here and, and around the world. Let's pray together this morning. Oh Lord, we have just sung of your wonder-working power. And oh Lord, do we need your kind of power, not the power that seeks to destroy, but the power that seeks to heal and to restore. And Lord Jesus, you demonstrated that so often time and again in your ministry. Lord, you... uh, You knew the plight of all people. Lord, you knew how we could be blinded by evil and pride and arrogance and violence. And Lord, we see the fallout of that happening all around our world. Lord, so many innocent people that are uprooted and forced to flee for their lives. Lord, we pray for your wonder-working power to be at work in our world and in our own lives. Lord, we pray that we would uh, see your wonder-working power able to bring peace in the midst of conflict, protection in the midst of, of violence, and Lord, that we, your people, would be a part of what you are doing and want done in the world. For your glory, amen. Uh, The British-American jazz pianist George Shearing was born blind. He often stood on a busy New York City street during the rush hour, and with his dark glasses and white cane, he could always count on someone sooner or later to offer to help him across the street. But one day, while he was waiting, he felt a tap on his shoulder. "'Excuse me, sir,' said a voice, "'but I'm blind.' Could you help me across the street? Certainly I'll help you, said Shearing. He reached out, found the arm of the, other, of the blind man, and straining his ears, listening for changes in the traffic, he finally thought, this is my chance. And after a few moments, he said, it's safe to cross. Let's go. And together, the two blind men set off across the intersection And as they walked, Shearing heard a lot of horn honking and yelling, but he was never quite sure if it was directed at him or not. And moments later, the two blind men were safely on the other side of the street. The other blind man thanked Shearing for his help and uh, before continuing on his way. And Shearing later told a close friend what he had done. His astonished friend said, George, why on earth did you do such a dangerous thing? And Shearing smiled and replied, Oh, I couldn't resist the irony of it. The blind leading the blind. This was the biggest thrill of my whole life. (laughs) Well, if we were to ask the writer of the fourth gospel why he included the story of the blind man leading the blind men in John chapter 9, I think he might have got a response with a smile on his face. Oh, I couldn't resist the irony of it. See, the story that we're going to be looking at and reading 
and studying this morning has an unresistible and unfailing charm to it. Even a casual reader is guaranteed to uh, experience, you know, a variety of emotions. And the more one studies this action-packed drama in John 9, and I invite you to turn there, uh, the more we see its amusing irony and hidden truths. So let's look at uh, John chapter 9. It's a long chapter, but it is a great story, and it is well worth reading. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Still, they did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it? that now he can see. Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because uh, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, He's of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. What do you want, to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Well, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of the opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, Oh, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that he had been thrown out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Oh, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Well, this chapter is a a case study with a real-life example of the message that Jesus had been preaching the last couple chapters during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was the fall festival, one of the big three that Jewish people came to Jerusalem from far and wide to celebrate. It was the Festival of Lights. For at the end of each day, there was an elaborate lamp lighting ceremony that took place in the temple, in the court of the the women, uh, as you can see on the slide. As uh, commentator Ray Bystrom explains, four giant lamps containing about 65 liters of oil, and they used uh, wicks made from discarded priestly robes, and then they were lit. And the Jewish sources report that every area of the temple was exposed to the light of these lamps. You know, you have to think. They didn't have any street lights, right? With torches in hand, the people danced and sang throughout the night, commemorating God's presence with them in the pillar of fire that accompanied them during the nights of their wilderness wanderings after they came out of Egypt. And so it is in this setting that Jesus declared already back in chapter 8, verse 12, and repeats here, I am the light of the world. He is the greater light, the true light that surpasses anything taking place in the temple. He is the ultimate reality behind their celebration. He is the one God sent into a dark world to give light to all people of all nations. Chapter 9 demonstrates and illustrates Jesus' enlightening power in the life of a man who had lived in darkness his entire life and is miraculously given light by Jesus. Throughout the story of this man's healing, we see another parable begin to unfold. Through the story of this man, uh, this, his physical healing becomes a symbol of spiritual healing. Well, physical blindness is replaced with spiritual blindness in the Pharisees. 
And at the end of the story, there's this splendid reversal that appears. The man who once lived in darkness now lives with physical and spiritual light. But those who opposed him and the light of Christ that now shines through him are those who are shown to be the most spiritually blind of all. Well, let's look at it in a little more detail. In these opening verses, Jesus and his disciples, they see a blind man. But their response, if you notice, is very different. To the disciples, this blind man is a, a source of theological speculation. A rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. The disciples assume, as most people did at that time, that his suffering was the result of sin. You know, we might say bad karma somewhere along the way. And they just can't agree on whose fault it is, his fault or his parents. Now, they seem blind, I think, to the effect their assumption and speculation would probably have on him. For example, one of my former teachers, Gordon Maddies, uh, recently wrote how when he was Young, he recalled his mom suffered from, from multiple sclerosis. And he also remembered how, how her telling, his mother telling him how a woman in their congregation had asked, had asked her if there might be unconfessed sin in her life to have caused this condition. Over time, Gordon said, I needed to come to terms with the troubling possibility that my mother might have been at fault or worse, that God caused her illness. And yet years later, in my sermon at her funeral, he says, I pointed to the righteous Job, to the ambiguous uncertainties of Ecclesiastes, which asserts that bad things do happen to good people, and ultimately to Jesus, who refused to ascribe blame to the man born blind. To Jesus, this is not someone to blame. He's not an object of theological speculation. He's a person to be loved. Indeed, Jesus sees him as someone, he says, no, someone in whom the work of God will be displayed. Think of it. This is a man who will be like in a trophy case, right? Not thrown out with the trash. What a contrast. And Jesus begins his work on the man through a treatment plan that seems kind of strange. You know, he spits on the ground, makes some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. And yet Jesus also used spit to heal a deaf mute in Mark chapter 7 and another blind man in Mark chapter 8. And so perhaps Jesus did this because a spittle in that day was often thought to have medicinal power. Or perhaps Jesus was reflecting God's work in creation. Remember the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth. Such healing was clearly a God work. For before this, nobody ever heard of the eyes of a blind man, you know, being opened. And notice also that the blind man was not healed until he had carried out Jesus' instructions and washed in the pool of Siloam. And John wants us to know that Siloam means sent. Because it carries symbolic significance. In this gospel, 22 times Jesus is referred to as the one who is sent by God. And so the blind man is being sent by the one who was sent by God to do his work. And it is when the man obeys the command of the one sent by God that he came home seeing. 
How wonderful, right? I would have thought that this man's, you know, remarkable healing would have sparked wonder, joy, praise, and and thanksgiving from those around him. But it doesn't. Instead, when he goes home, his neighbors get into an argument whether he really is the same man who was formerly blind. I mean, the speculation about him continues. And they refer to him only as the man who used to sit and beg. I mean, he's right there in their presence. And they seem to have paid so little attention to him before that they aren't sure he's really the same man or just looks like someone that looks like him. I, I remember having a, experiencing a case of mistaken identity. It was years ago. I was attending a conference, and this elderly lady, I was in the registration, and this elderly lady comes up and says, Oh, and I can't remember what name she used. And then she came and gave me a big hug. And she said, I didn't expect to see you here. I said, I didn't expect to see you here either. I don't. (laughs) So it was interesting. I wasn't quite the person that she thought. Okay. But you can be sure that in that case, I definitely knew who I was. And the blind man says, no, okay, people, I'm the guy. It's really me. Right? And when asked where Jesus is, he can only say, I don't know. Because quite frankly, he had never seen him, right? And so he couldn't spot him in the crowd. Though I think he probably would have recognized his voice. The voice of the one who had sent him and who had saved him from a lifetime of darkness. It's interesting that Jesus had, has, from this point on, stepped off stage. And he actually won't reappear, come back, until the closing verses of this chapter. And yet, Jesus remains the constant focus of conversation and controversy the whole time. And how is this possible? Because he has a bold and courageous witness who, in a relentless series of interrogations, will simply and clearly say what he knows better than anyone else. I was blind but now I see. His neighbors question him first and then bring him to the Pharisees for further questioning, hoping to get at the bottom of what really happened because, you know, miracles like this are impossible. And as the Pharisees question the man about his healing, we soon see their main concern is not that he was healed. There's no praise the Lord you can see. No, as a rule that was broken, because on the day which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Ah, those verbs, those actions by Jesus were especially incriminating because they appeared on the Pharisees' long list of work that ought to be avoided on the Sabbath. Their investigation into this matter quickly leads to a verdict. This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. No joy for the man's healing, only judgment for the healer. Though the jury was deeply divided, we are told, for some wondered, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they deepen their interrogation of the subject. What have you to say about him? After all, it was your eyes that he opened. Throughout their divisive debate, the former blind man had sat and listened. (laughs) Again, 
Notice how often this is taking place. You know, now we see the effect that all of this debating and discussion is having on him. In his growing and deepening understanding. Initially, he thought of that he, the healer as the man they called Jesus. But on further reflection, listening to all of this, he has come to see and believe that Jesus, he must be far more. Surely, he says, he is a prophet. But that was not an option his interrogators could accept, and so they reverted to the earlier theory that it couldn't be a miracle, and therefore it must be a case of mistaken identity. So the man's parents, they're subpoenaed, and they're questioned. Perhaps his parents are colluding in a hoax. Is this really your son, they ask? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? Now, from this line of questioning, the parents know where the pitfalls lie. We know he is our son, number one, they answer, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Now, I think it would be reasonable if as witnesses they had stopped there. This I know, this I don't know. But they don't stop there. Instead, they deflect these accusers' attention back to their poor son. Ask him, they reply. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Why such hand-washing and buck-passing, you might wonder. Well, because his parents are afraid. They know, as John tells us, where the line of political correctness lies and the grave consequences of crossing that line. They were afraid of the religious leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one, the hero of God's long-awaited story, that they would be canceled, not just on social media, but actually be put out of the synagogue, out of the community of faith. It is a fearful thing to be canceled and become a social outcast. That is why the pressure to conform, to, to go along with whatever is socially or politically correct is often so powerful and effective in suppressing the truth. You know, if you're a Russian, you don't want to say what's really happening that you've heard about, or you will definitely be suppressed, canceled, maybe even physically. Now, of all people, the man who had been born blind knew what it was like to be canceled, to be an outcast. He had lived that all of his life. And perhaps they thought that of all people who would cave to the pressure to avoid becoming an outcast again, it was this man. And so the, the Pharisees summoned him again, telling him this time, this time, give glory to God by telling the truth. The truth. How ironic. That is exactly what he's been doing. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What the Pharisees really want is not the truth, but only what will support their claim that this man is a sinner. And so they, they pressure him to change his story. And something he cannot, he will not do. Why? He is under oath. In their own court. Indeed, he repeats the simple fact, I was blind, but now I see. 
And then he moves to the offense by questioning them and their motives. Why? Why do you ask? Do you want to hear it again? Oh, do you want it to become his disciples too? It is impossible to miss the irony, right? And I hope you don't miss that word, too. Do you want to become his disciples, too? Also, he has now come to count himself as one of Jesus' disciples. Despite the cost and harassment that he's getting, he thinks this is where the truth lies. And the Pharisees shift from arguing with the man to hurling insults and abuse at him. They think they are on more firm ground as disciples of Moses than he is as a disciple of Christ. But this new disciple of Christ can't help but expose the folly of their claim. He may be simple and uneducated compared to him. He would have never had the opportunity to learn to read or anything, right? But he had been around the temple. He knew and believed a bedrock, a couple of bedrock truths. One, that he had heard themselves, they say, that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Hear it all the time. Psalm 1 is a good psalm. There's many scriptures they, you know, they would have used to expound that. And they also knew that nobody ever heard of opening the eyes of a, mind, a man born blind before Jesus had done it. I'm exhibit A. It's the real deal. He knows those two things absolutely with great certainty. And the most logical conclusion is that if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But instead, they respond to this faithful, truth-telling witness with verbal slurs. You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And also with physical violence. And they threw him out. Jesus heard. He heard what happened. And he goes and finds this man. And he inquires of him. And, and the man responds to Jesus' questions and, and invitations to take that all-important step of confessing him as Lord. He says, Lord, and kneeling before him in worship. It's interesting. This is the only place in the gospel where anyone is said to worship Jesus. John is telling us this formerly blind man has got more insight than everyone else. Others will only get it after Jesus' resurrection. This guy gets it already. He is a model disciple. And yet, while he has been taking this journey to full faith and spiritual insight, the Pharisees, they've been going in exactly the opposite direction. In fact, they claim to see, but they show how blind they are. A blind man has exposed that. You know, and it left me thinking, what a waste of a great miracle and testimony. What a waste I mean, they have gotten the best evidence that they can, an incredible sign. And yet it is not wasted on everyone. And it will not be wasted on us if we take that journey to faith with him. And if we faithfully bear witness to others about Jesus just like he did.
It will not be wasted. I think a couple of faith lessons and applications. First, I find that this story challenges disabled attitudes. Time and time time again. Challenges the disabled attitudes of, you know, of the disciples, of his neighbors, of the Pharisees, who all overlook him. They have discussions about him right in his presence. But Jesus never does that. Jesus never writes anyone off. Instead, he sees what they can become in him and through him. A masterwork. A masterwork. This man is. A cast-off becomes a masterwork. No wonder Paul said, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, secondly, the story also illustrates the journey to faith. The journey to faith in Jesus. It's often a process. And it often includes the need to seek the truth. It also includes hearing the evidence, weighing it, examining it, and then be willing to follow where it leads. You know, faith is not a blind leap into the dark. It is on evidence. It still requires a step of faith. Absolutely. All of life does. And it's also interesting to me that in this journey of faith, the opposition that intimidated this man's parents and, uh, and intimidated others in John's day, it actually deepens this man's faith. It is actually, as he's hearing this all, and he's the, the subject of this investigation, he begins to see with greater and greater clarity. And it deepens his faith. It deepens his understanding of who Jesus is. And thirdly, this this man models being a faithful witness, a faithful witness for Jesus. I mean, here is a man who knows how to witness. He hasn't taken any courses on how to do that. He doesn't know how to share four spiritual laws. He knows how to share the good news that he knows. And we should take lessons from him. That's why John gives it. This guy is our teacher among all of these teachers This is the man who is our teacher. Many times we may be afraid to say anything about the Lord because we think we're going to be dragged into arguments that are way over our heads. And there we're going to be questions we aren't going to know or have the answer to necessarily. But witnessing is not, Jesus did not say, and you will be my witness. He didn't say you will all be teachers and lecturers and know all of the truth. No, he said, you'll be my witnesses. That means sticking often to the basics, to the basic truths of Scripture and sharing what God has done for us. The main thing Jesus wants us to do is what this man did. Share what God has done in your life and in my life. And that is how God becomes famous and his reputation grows. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who sent your one and only Son, Jesus, into the world to be the hero of our story. 
to bring life and light into a world that continues to show how blind and dark it is. We thank you that you are also there to to support and build our faith even in the midst of adversity. And Lord, often the light shines brightest in the midst of darkness. Lord, we thank you for this model witness who continues to speak through to us across the ages, who continues to shine the light of Christ. Lord, we thank you that this is the kind of God you are and that you have given us opportunities, Lord, to be your witnesses in this world. Amen. Wow, this is a service I didn't want to have stop at all this morning. Just thinking I was uh, meeting with somebody this week, and uh, we needed one of those lines in there, you are the way maker, as we were talking about that. And it just, uh, it's pretty special uh, when we work for God, because he has no limits, and, uh, and what he, who he is, and what he can do, and when we just keep pointing people to that, and we pray for one another, and we just trust that God is going to help us to find a way to help us uh, through. Uh, if you would like prayer this morning, we've got uh, someone from our prayer team, uh, Travis, here available up uh, down at the front to your right-hand side, and I know he would love to, to pray for you and, and to pray with you. One, I was thinking of the uh, benediction Paul in, in his letter to the Ephesians. Often he ends his letters with a, with a blessing, but in Ephesians he also puts one in right in the middle because he's been talking about God and he says, uh, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us, in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us go and serve the Lord.